0: Welcome to a new sermon series. I'll be in Colossians chapter 3 in the upcoming weeks. It occurred to me just this morning as I was preparing for some of the final thoughts and dialing in on things that every Sunday that I have preached... Since Christmas, I've been in the book of John. That's a bit of our bread and butter here at the Mission Church. We just open a book of the Bible, we start at the beginning, and we work our way all the way through, a verse or two at a time, until we get to the end. We love doing it that way because we feel like it, it's the best way to honor the text. Uh, we stumble upon things that we may not have uh, chosen to uh, aim at, and the Lord offers up for us. But occasionally, we'll pause and we'll do a series like this one where we we grab a, a topic, an idea, something that we see flow from the text of Scripture, and then we spend our time looking at what God's Word has to say about that thing. Today, we're going to be talking about unity. But even when we do a sermon series like this where we begin with the topic, we want to make sure our feet are firmly planted into the Word of God. We don't want to be floating out In any esoteric sense, we want God's Word to drive us and not the other way around. And so we're going to use Colossians chapter 3 as our guide through this series. We'll be covering verses 12 through 17. And so uh, today we're only going to be getting into the first verse of that. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open uh, to Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. But I want you to understand why... I was compelled to preach on this particular topic. For some, it might seem kind of obvious. Our church could use some galvanizing around the idea of unity. But when we zoom out even further and look at the culture around us, especially here in Utah, I think this is a significant thing that we must be warned to seek. I love Utah. I've had Utah in my heart since before I moved here. God put that on our hearts about 10 years ago, a little more than that now, for us to move out here and to be part of Christian life and kingdom building for the glory of God. There are many needs here. You know, one unique thing about Utah, and you know this if you've lived here for any length of time, is that unlike the great majority of other parts of the U.S., Utah has never been predominantly Christian. This is the only state that was neither founded by Christians, nor has enjoyed the fruit of a significant Christian presence. Even today, Utah's population, Christian population, is less than 3%. And there are areas of Utah where hundreds of thousands of people live in an area that's less than one-half of 1% Christian 1 John 5, 19 says that we know that we are from God and we have overcome the evil one and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So it's true to say then that Utah, think about this, Utah has been firmly in the grip of the enemy since the fall. This means that Christians who live here, us, truly are pilgrims in a holy land, an unholy land. I want you to kind of imagine that, that image, pilgrims in an unholy land, spiritual pilgrims in a hostile place. They've built a fortress, established a beachhead, so to speak, in enemy territory. Uh, we're surrounded by our foes that attack day and night in a spiritual sense. Now, by God's grace... Pilgrims are under God's spiritual protection. So much so, the Bible even goes on to say that we've been born of God and therefore have overcome the world, that the believer is protected by God. The evil one does not touch him. First John 5 says, So if the enemy outside of the gates, outside of the fortress, seeks to destroy but cannot touch them from those external forces, in other words, we are largely, as believers, spiritually protected From external attacks, what then is the pilgrim's greatest threat? And the answer is division from within. When the enemy can't win with attacks from the outside, he seeks to poison and destroy from within, a turning on each other. This has been his way since the beginning. Since the earliest days of Acts where the believers were uniting together and growth was happening and spiritual maturing began to take place and miracles were taking place and people getting baptized in large measure and all of a sudden there were moments of conflict and people had to deal with that. This is why the New Testament authors repeatedly warn us of the destructive potential of division amongst believers and encourage us to stand united. To stand in unity, I'm going to read through Colossians three, twelve through seventeen. This is one such place where a New Testament author encourages and warns believers regarding unity. I'm going to read twelve through seventeen because that's our text. If you guys want to spend some time in that with your families over the course of the next month or so, that might be really fruitful. You better prepared as we walk on in here. We'll read through that text. I'll pray, and then we're really going to spend all of our time in just chapter verse twelve this morning. Let's read the text. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, Father, please be with us now as we open this word. Christ gave us the perfect example of these things, Father. He secured salvation for us that we can unite together, not because of our goodness, our works, not because of all the, all the checking of the boxes on the, the list here we see in front of us, but only and solely because Christ accomplished all of this in His life and His death. Lord, let us follow that example Let us live according to your word. Help us understand it this morning. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. In this text here, the Apostle Paul begins by telling us who we are and then tells us what we should do. So we're going to start with the who we are part of this text. Colossians 3.12. You can follow along. Just look up this. i got this on the slide in front of you so we can all see it together. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul here calls us God's chosen ones. It's the first thing he says that we are. We're God's chosen ones. Jesus even says in John 15 to his, uh, to his disciples, he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. So often the Bible reminds us that we are a chosen people, selected. You know, there's a whole genre of films, uh, movies that appeal to the, the sports dramas where uh, a, a coach is a set upon a group of a dysfunctional people in a team. And he has to come in and clean house and clean up the team. I'm thinking like Mighty Ducks. That was one that when I grew up watching Mighty Ducks. And the coach shows up and goes, you've got to be kidding me. I'm their coach. This is my team? There's that kind of reluctance for these that he got stuck with. This is just not at all the way that it works with God. God's not stuck with you if you're a believer. He wants you. He has chosen you. That's why Ephesians 1 even tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So, So not merely were we chosen. We were chosen in Christ. That means according to his perfections, according to his worth, not according to you being good. So it's not as though there's some cosmic dodgeball tournament and God's choosing, I like you and you and I'll pick you and you. According to some merit, some condition met in us, popularity contest, speed, size, ability, nope. Not any condition met in us, but a condition met alone in Christ. And when? Before the foundation of the world. This means that we're not God's plan B. I I can take this team. We're not his safety date. We're his first choice. If you're a believer today, there's no mistake. God's not surprised that you're here. This was always the plan. Before the dinosaurs lived and died, God had chosen who would be his. We are God's Chosen ones. That's where Paul starts. We're his chosen ones. We are also his beloved. We are also his holy ones. And that's what he says next holy and beloved. If you're a believer, you are called holy. Holy. That's set apart. That's made for something special and significant and different. You are not different from the world because you perform better works. You are different from the world because. God has adopted you into his holy household. Now, of course, you and I should aspire to honor and obey him fully. We should put to death whatever sin is in our lives. This is called mortifying sin in our lives. We should make war on the flesh. We should set our heart to do what is right. But listen carefully. That is not what makes you holy. You are holy... Because God declares you to be holy. Even before sanctification begins its work, that's God working on you to conform you into the image of his son, to make you more like Jesus over time. Even before that work starts, even before that work commences and concludes, in the end, you are already made, declared holy. Some people think that you become holy by your own effort. Do holy things to be holy. Other people think that God made you holy, and therefore God doesn't care what you do at all. Because he said you're holy, doesn't care what you do. Neither of those things is true. You should live holy because you are already declared holy. I want to show this to you earlier in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's all of us. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's how that works. The basis for your holiness as a believer, the reason that God can call us holy, It's not because of your works, but because of the death of Jesus on a cross for your sins. Hey, if you're not a believer here today, we're, we're eager to have you here. We want for you to hear this. As believers, we are called holy. That is true. But we are not holy because we've done better things than you. Because we've cleaned ourselves up better than you. Because we're smarter. We're wiser. We've cracked the code spiritually. That's not what makes us holy. We've been made holy in the same way we want for you to be made holy. We want for you to see that you're not holy in and of yourself. You're a sinner. And therefore, you're deserving of God's just judgment. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And that can only happen if those sins are paid for. And you can't pay for your own sins. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus lived the perfect life that we ought to have lived, earning perfection, eternal life. He did not deserve death on a cross, and that's what he got. Why? Whose sins did he die for? The answer is the sins of everyone who will ever believe. If you're not a believer today, this is what we want for you. We do want holiness for you, but not a holiness that you could attain, because you can't. We want for you, just as every believer who's come before, to repent of sins, turn from all the things that we have turned to instead of Christ, and turn to Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. If you're not a believer today, this is what we want for you today. Before you leave, hang out with us at the picnic afterward. Talk to someone before you leave. You need to hear this gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Any one of the believers here would be thrilled to talk with you about this today. And then, not by your own works, And not after a long season of proving yourself and working all those nasty sins out and getting some distance between you and the bad stuff, you'll become holy like us. No, immediately you will be declared holy. Because as the Father looks to his Son, Christ, that's where you reside. The summary of the New Testament teaching on holiness is this. If you are a believer, God's made you holy, now act like it. So here Paul calls us holy and beloved. Beloved, beloved, you are loved by God. You are a chosen one, holy, you are beloved, loved by God. You know, the, the root of that word beloved there is agape. That's the root of that word. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you might have heard uh, pastors bring this up in a sermon before. There's a bunch of different Greek words in the New Testament and even outside of the New Testament uh, that we can translate into the word love as the word love in English. Okay, we've got words like eros, that's a romantic kind of love. Phileo, that's a a brotherly love. Storge, that's kind of a familial, parent-to-child kind of love. But agape, agape is an unconditional love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a selfless love. It's the love of the perfect father to us. It's a divine love. That's the word there. That's the word being used here. Beloved, agape. It means literally to love, to prize, to express fondness for, or treat with affection. When I was a kid before, I remember hearing my parents sometimes say, you know, when we had a hard back and forth and t- the teen year battles, and they'd be like, you know, I, I love you, but I don't really like you very much right now, <laughs> you know? The kind of love that our perfect father has for us is the fondness the the self-sacrificial the unconditional love we are beloved. This is why Romans eight thirty-eight through thirty-nine is such an awesome refrain for Christians. We sing it. We 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 emblazon this uh, this on our hearts. We 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 put this on billboards and bumper stickers and T-shirts because it's just such a truth that we need to go back to time and time again. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the. Love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you grew up in a home where you felt loved by your parents, particularly a father, you have an enormous advantage over others in the world. And even if you did not have that kind of upbringing from your earthly father, as a believer, you do have that kind of perfect love from a perfect father in heaven. And some of you might just need to be reminded by that today. You are loved by God. You are agape, unconditionally loved by God. So here Paul starts this part of this book, and he reminds us, we are the chosen ones. We are holy. We are beloved. That's who we are. Now he turns his attention to what we should do. He says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. He's going to actually give five things here, you'll see. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are hard to divide entirely out because when they're present in the life of a person, they overlap so much, it's hard to say, what's kindness, what's meekness, what's humility? It's kind of hard to do that. But I want to just look at these things with you in the remaining time that we have. But first, put on is where he begins. Put on then. What's the first point? Peace... It takes effort. Everything he's about to teach us here is a desire to unify for there to be peace amongst fellow believers. And this is what you're going to have to do in order to make sure that that's true. Put on, then, these list of things. Put on, them. You know, no one has ever stepped out of the shower, tripped into a pile of laundry, stood up fully dressed. Oh, that's great. It takes intention. It takes planning. You, you have to know what you're doing. It takes purpose, even though you are already chosen, you're already holy, you're already beloved, you need to pursue these things deliberately. It's not our default. Our default is entropy, from chaos to dis, from order to chaos. That's the default. It's elusive, peace. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us that peace is this kind of way that you need to literally strive for it. Strive for peace with everyone. Strain for it. You've got you to hunt it down, chase it. you got to pursue it. It's hard to catch and even harder to retain, harder to keep. But it's worth the hunt. Believers, this is your job. This is your duty as believers. Pursue these things. Altogether, we must pursue these things. We must put them on. These are not the things that just default mark us. They're the things that will take effort. So if you're ever wondering, wondering, why why is peace slipping away in this relationship with this person? Why is peace slipping away in this group that I used to be close with, in an entirety of a church, in a family, in a nation? Why is it slipping away? Because that's what peace does. It runs away. It's like that wild cat you bring into the house. The second the door opens, it's looking for a way out. And so, we have to hold on. By putting on these things. What are the things? He starts by saying compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. Compassion. This is a feeling of sorrow or deep fondness or tenderness for one who is suffering or experiencing misfortune. That's what compassion is. As a biblical definition. You know the word compassion in English comes from Latin, as many of our words do. Uh, Calm is, is together, like with together, and passion is suffering. So literally the word compassion means suffer together, suffer with someone. Someone's enduring a trial, they're going through a suffering or a struggle, for them to not do that alone. Compassion doesn't let people struggle alone. That's what compassion is. And we're told to put on compassionate hearts. That's, that's literally deeply in us. If you, have, if you have the King James Version in front of you, instead of the word heart, it says bowels. That's the way the ancients thought about the, the source of, a, of our soul's desire to do things. In, deep inside of us, compassionate heart coming from within. That's what we're supposed to have for each other. In the Bible, this word is also rendered mercy, or sympathy, have that on other people. God is called the Father of mercies, a Father of compassion in 2 Corinthians. And sometimes this is all we can offer. This is, this is all we have to give to somebody else who's going through a hard time. We don't have the answers. We don't have the solutions. It's not that we're so wise or strong or that we're able to drag them up and out of the suffering. We climb down in the pit. We hug them. And let them know they're not alone. Sometimes that's all we can offer. And that's enough. In relationship with others, you need to be always ready to offer compassion because suffering is a default certainty amongst people. It's common. Someone's going to struggle. Someone's going to have trials. Someone's going to be hurting. We need to be ready for this. Now, what does this look like in practice? It's the kind of thing that oftentimes you can just feel. You know when you've been in that place and you've felt compassion and when you haven't. But here's some thoughts that may be helpful for you. The compassionate person person lowers their demands on the one who is suffering. I want you to imagine with me a platoon of soldiers in a firefight. Battle starts, bullets fly, blood flows. And after the dust settles a little bit, the cacophony resolves. There's a soldier lying on the battlefield full of holes. And the unit comes around and sees this one down on the ground. Now, what, what, what do those do in a band of brothers, a good, healthy unit? What do they do? Come on, man. Now we pick up your pack. Now, now we're down a man. Can, can you please just get up? No, no, no. The band of brothers lowers their demands. Ramirez, pick up his pack. Schmidt, take his rifle. You two, make a stretcher. You, you, you take his place at point. What happens? The entire platoon reorganizes immediately. The whole group. They watch the suffering, and they do exactly what the Bible says to do. If one member suffers, all suffer. The unit comes around, and people reorganize everything because that's what we do. We lower the demand on the one who's suffering. It's the compassionate heart we're supposed to have. In fact, the way that Paul will say this elsewhere is, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's in Galatians 6. The people were really exercised in Galatia about having laws to follow. They were adding circumcision as a need in order to be at peace with God. He's like, oh, you want a law? Here's a law. Bear one another's burdens. Go follow that law. There's one for you. That's what we're supposed to do. In fact, when Jesus was furious with the self-righteous Pharisees, you might remember in Matthew 23, one of the things right out of his mouth in the beginning of this huge public rebuke against these hypocrites was that he says, you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you tie up heavy burdens and place them on the shoulders of the people and you will not lift a finger to help them. The image of, of that Pharisee, the image of a lack of compassion. Adding burdens rather than lifting them. How you respond when you encounter a hurting Christian will reveal whether or not you have this, you have a compassionate heart. And Paul knows if you, if you want unity together as a body, you have to be known for compassionate hearts. Next he says, you need what? Kindness. Humility. What's kindness? Well, think about this. Compassion is displayed when a person is suffering. That's when it's chiefly on display. But kindness can be exercised all the time. You don't need to wait for someone to suffer until you offer them kindness. That's just a a spirit, a heart's kind of a, a, a default approach to others. That should always be true about us. Now, I need to say, because in English, and especially in modern day, we kind of confuse kindness and niceness. We interchange kind and nice. And actually, I don't want to pick apart definitions too much, but I do think that there actually is a difference between those ideas. Kind should not be confused with nice. Nice is easy to fake. It often stems from a desire to be liked by others. He's a nice guy. And so it's self-serving. It's superficial. It's skin deep. Nice is what you call the guy that never seems to have any conflict with others. To say it very simply, Jesus was not nice. Jesus was kind. Perfectly kind. See, kindness is authentic. It comes from within, and it actually starts from an understanding that the other is an image-bearer of God, worthy of respect, worthy of right treatment. They have real value. It starts there, thinking well of another. Kindness cares more about other people than what they think about you. That's, That's kindness as opposed to niceness. And for kindness to be genuine, it must be humble. You don't think of the arrogant, kind person very often. Kindness must also be humble. this is, This is directly next to humility, humility. Uh, James says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Ask yourself this: What do you want from God? Grace or opposition? You know, it says that same language multiple times in the New Testament. It's also drawn from the Old Testament. God is against. He considers himself an enemy of pride. It's a dangerous place to be. You, you, you can have something from God, grace or opposition. Now, how does this work as a believer? Because pride makes you as an enemy to those around you, including God. So how does this work? If you're a believer, if you're already chosen, you're, you're, you're beloved, you're holy, you're How in the world could God possibly be opposed to us? Well, it's kind of like the way a parent uh, may love their son or daughter deeply. And when they see that child begin to become addicted to something harmful, they hate the thing that is harming their child, right? And so the hatred for that substance or the addiction, because of its harm for the one they love, that hatred is proportionate to their love for their child. God hates what will harm us and bring reproach upon Christ's name in us. And so God hates pride, and he says this repeatedly. He will be opposed to that. And in his great love for you, he may crush your pride. And if you're too tied to your pride, that may be pretty painful. Humility is the demand. If you harbor pride in your heart without dealing with it, things are going to go very poorly for you. Few things will more quickly destroy relationships in your life than pride. More quickly do that. And we're warned of this all the time. Now, I just want to let you know, pride can show up in several ways. I'm just picking this apart a little bit. We see uh, the way the Bible talks about pride. We see examples of this all over. And I just want to show up maybe a few ways that pride may manifest itself. How do we observe that being pride? How, if you're self diagnosing, can you know, oh, that's actually pride at work in me? First is the classic and obvious arrogance. Arrogance. Arrogance is just simply looking down on others. It's probably the most overt manifestation of pride. You think more highly of yourself than others. You compare yourself with others all the time, and you mentally score people in various categories. You're a better parent, you're smarter. You make better financial decisions, better decisions on what to wear or buy or eat. You're a more faithful and wise Christian. The arrogant person even can devise a scoring system that makes them better than others. So it goes like this. The arrogant woman might look at her sister, see her and think she's prettier, but then restructure this point system to go, well, that's because she cares too much about her looks. So I'm actually more virtuous. We, we do it. So you get more points. And somehow in the final analysis, the arrogant person always ends up getting a higher score than everyone else. It's arrogance. You know, just just today in my Bible reading time that I do each day of the week, I was in Ezekiel 28. And uh, we hear this prophecy through Ezekiel to the prince of Tyre. And oftentimes people draw upon this one. It sounds like God's actually judging spiritual beings, maybe even judging Satan as he's judging the Prince of Tyre. But he specifically says of this guy, your heart was proud because of your beauty. And that led to his downfall. That there's a a way in which creatures judge ourselves according to others, go, oh, I'm more beautiful. Oh, I'm better, I'm greater, I'm higher. Well, then I deserve to be seen as that by others, to be exalted. And what does God say? He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Arrogance runs rampant in our day. You know, studies have been done on self-perception in our culture, and have found a phenomenon called illusory... Superiority. You've probably heard of this kind of thing before. I think I've even used it as an example up here from the pulpit before. It's the better than average effect. It's that when uh, millions of Americans have been surveyed in a whole bunch of different surveys, a great majority judge themselves to be better than average in looks, in wisdom or intellect, driving ability, all these kinds of things. And, and we know that it's a statistical impossibility for a majority to be above average. Can't happen. But we all tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Paul even says in Galatians 6, he says, if anyone thinks he is something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. This is common. We think too highly of ourselves. Arrogance is the most obvious manifestation of pride. We're told. To put on humility. Boasting is another manifestation of pride. This is where you're the hero of all your stories. If you've accomplished something great, you make sure everyone else knows about it. Have you ever heard that joke, how can you know if a person you just met has ever run a marathon? And the answer is, don't, wait, don't, don't worry, he'll tell you. Right? They find a way to fit their accomplishments into every conversation. You know, when I was in the Marine Corps, I learned a really good example of boasting is reminding everyone you were in the Marine Corps. It's not my fault. T-shirts even say, it's hard to be humble when you're the finest. I'm working on it. I didn't write it. I didn't write it. I'm working on it. When you try to find a way to get your good achievements in, I want you to know all I've accomplished. That's boasting. It's a very obvious an overt way that pride manifests itself. Stubbornness is another way pride manifests itself. Do you have to get your way all the time? Do you refuse to yield to others? Do you have to have the last word in an argument? If so, you might be stubborn. And this is a manifestation of pride. Do you have a hard time admitting you're wrong? The stubborn person even has a hard time listening to other viewpoints because as the person's talking, they're coming up with their solution, their answer to those things, even before they've finished hearing. Proverbs 18, 13 says, The one who answers before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That's so natural in so many of us. Stubborn. Are you stubborn? Maybe someone you live with is stubborn? That's the way pride manifests itself. Self-centeredness. It's another way. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. This is where your three favorite words are: me, myself, and I. You see yourself in every single situation. Someone else is having a hard day. Well, I have had a hard day. Someone else needs some help. Well, I, I, I need help. Someone else achieved. Well, once I achieved better. Right. That's self-centeredness. This one is especially sneaky as pride because this is how it can show up in ways that don't always seem like pride at first. Maybe you don't think too highly of yourself. Maybe you simply think too much about yourself. That's still self-centeredness. You're constantly worried about how others perceive you. So some people stand in front of the mirror for hours and they go, I am beautiful. I'm amazing. I'm better than others. That's very obviously self-centeredness and Arrogance on display. But others stand in front of the mirror for hours and they say, I'm ugly. Nobody likes me. And it's not arrogant, but it's self-centered. Why? Because the problem is that you're standing in front of the mirror for hours. You're thinking too much about yourself, even if not too highly of yourself. And it's a tricky way the enemy lets pride in to a person that may not always seem to be susceptible to that. Now, now, luckily, there's a very easy test you can perform to determine whether or not pride could be a problem for you. You take two fingers like this, and you put it right here. And if you feel a pulse, you can be assured pride might be a problem for you. This is the root of all sins in some measure can very likely be traced back to a wrong thinking of the self, some measure of pride. This is why the Bible repeatedly warns to be humble. He just says it here, put on humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, what what do you do in humility? Consider others more significant than yourself." Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. See, there's ways to combat that pride. Think better of others. Think they are more significant. Care more about their needs and interests even than your own. And we can battle against it. That's how we can put on humility. What's next in the list? Meekness and patience. Meekness is oftentimes associated with humility. In fact, sometimes people just kind of interchange those words. They seem so similar, and they are very similar. Meekness is a gentleness. It's a courteousness, a considerateness. It certainly works together with humility, but it's a disposition with which we deal with others. And we're told repeatedly in the Bible to deal with both believers and unbelievers alike with gentleness. There should be a spirit of gentleness and meekness about us as believers. Not always bowl in china shop, but gentle with one another. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. Additionally, one of the fruit of the Spirit is also patience. Patience. If you're a believer, God is working on you. He's working on you right away. The moment you become a believer, he starts working on your heart, chipping off the parts that he needs to go away and building up the things that need to be strengthened. We call this sanctification. And He's working on the other Christians in your life, too, at the same time. He works on you, and He works on them. And when is it that that work will be complete? Who remembers in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. When? At the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. That's at the end. That means the work continues all the way until you die and stand before the Lord and no longer have sinfulness attached to you, that is when that work is complete, and not until. And so, we must expect that there will be people around us in every circumstance. We're just going to need to be patient with the process of sanctification. God is working on those people. He's working on you. Be patient, patient with other people. You know, I think that oftentimes we have a priority list in mind of the things we'd like God to work on in our partner, in our kids, and the others in our life. Hey, God, it's really annoying how my partner does X. Can you sanctify that out first? Put that up here. That one. Uh, just get that out, please. And God's like, no, that's like seventh on the list. We'll get there 15 years from now. And we're going to have to be what patient with God's working on us in that. We're going to have to wait. And no, it's going to take a long time. And as he's working on others, he's working on us. And his order of priority in sanctifying is often so different than ours. And he is the perfect, wise king. There's so much more to be said on all of these points. But this is what I need you to know. The enemy is aching to destroy believers. Believers. He is aching to divide Christians one from another. He is aching to get in. His only hope for slowing the advance of Christ's kingdom is that the church would turn in on itself and bite and devour one another because it is an absolute certainty we win. The stakes are high talking about eternity, immortal souls of the loss of this world, and they are watching. The Bible repeatedly tells us that our, goods should be, our, our good deeds should be done, our living according to these things should be done in such a way that the world observes and sees your mighty glorious good deeds and glorifies our Father who is in heaven. That's what's going to happen. When the world observes how we love one another, how well we do these things, that will be a witness to the watching world. That will be a passive witness. They will just simply see these believers love each other. Do you see what they do? Are you watching how they care for each other? Do they not know that they're sinners? How do they overlook these things in one another? How do they do these things repeatedly? Because we get to draw on the perfect well of Christ where there is no lack of any of these things whatsoever. I want to close our time thinking right now about one of Aesop's fables that is drawn directly from principles of the Word of God. This is in 1867. The enemy schemes against God's people by a divide-and-conquer strategy, and he does this all over the place, and especially amongst his people, so much so that this is a truism that even even the unbelieving world sees How division amongst peoples can cause extraordinary and lasting harm. Aesop's fables, he writes this. A lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another, so that whichever way he approached them, he was met with the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarreling among themselves. And each went off to pasture alone on a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. The moral of the story is united we stand, divided we fall. Why is there ever any truth in worldly knowledge, worldly wisdom, when it draws on what God has already declared to be true? Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. How critical unity is, not only for the good health of a church and the joy that we have there, but in order to advance the kingdom of God into a lost world. I'm going to invite the band on up. I'm going to pray to close our time this morning. And in this prayer that I'm going to offer right now, I'm just going to very specifically ask that the Lord impress upon our hearts in these particular areas that we just highlighted here out of Colossians chapter 3. That if we're falling short here and in places and need extra help and attention there, that the Lord will, will alert our eyes to those things. That we will be helped by one another to be sanctified in these ways and that we will see these as important to attain and to pursue. That as elusive as peace is. It's worth the hunt. Let's pray. Father, I, just, I, I know that my brothers and sisters, because we are human, will struggle with so many sins and errors and all kinds of issues. To, to one degree, Lord, we don't need the enemy to do anything in order to divide because we carry the seeds of division within us simply in our sinfulness. But Father, we know also that the enemy seeks to divide, to conquer, He wants to undermine all of Christ's work in building his kingdom. And Father, while he cannot possibly win the game, his loss is certain. It is determined. Father, it may victory for us come at a high cost in our day whenever we don't unify and seek the things that Paul wrote into Colossians 3. Lord, I pray that these things would become more and more part of the reputation of the people of the mission church that we would, we would put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, Lord, let these things mark who we are as believers. And not because we have so diligently done all the right checking of boxes in order to attain it, but only by an overflow of your goodness to us that we would not celebrate how wise we have been in attaining these things, but that we would just celebrate the wonderful and merciful and gracious gifts of God and unity at our church. Lord, we beg you for unity. Bring us together. Make us resilient to the enemy's attacks. Give us together Fruit that we can share in a huge spiritual meal with one another, celebrating all that you have done in bringing us together. God, I pray, for, I pray for households, I pray for families, I pray for fathers and mothers to be further united, for marriages that need to grow and be strengthened, Lord, for you to, you to give them relief from the enemy's attacks, that you'd show us our own errors, that we wouldn't just point our finger at everything else someone else has done wrong or their shortcomings or failings, that we would care most about how we have not honored you, living holy according to our declared status of holy that you've already graciously given us. So Father, teach us how to do that well. Build us up. Teach us how to unite and not divide. Teach us how to grow so much in this area that we pass on these learnings to the next generation and beyond. That our children and our children's children would learn how to be resilient against these common wiles of the enemy to destroy. And that we would be a church filled with joy as we pursue and attain these things according to your gracious measure. In Jesus' good and holy name we pray, amen.